Try that again. Good morning. morning. Just want to make sure that you're here and you know that you're here and that you're awake. I want you to do something as we begin our time this morning. Would you take a moment, just say good morning to the person next to you. Just greet them and say good morning, just for a minute. Good morning. All right. With that, we want to dismiss our kids for Kids Quest. So, kids, you're welcome to go. Inside your bulletin, there's an outline. I want to encourage you to take that outline out and follow along with me this morning in your notes as we walk through this message, which I think is extremely important for your walk with Christ this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful as we come here to worship you. We're thankful, Lord, that you have made access to you before your throne of grace. And you have given that freely to each one of us because we've placed our faith in you. And you did the work of opening the way before your eternal and secure throne of grace and mercy. Lord, I pray that you continue to do a deep work in our lives today. I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen the security of our faith in you today. That whatever doubts we may be entertaining or struggling with, I pray, Lord, that through your word and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would strengthen our relationship of grace with you today. We pray, Lord, be with our children as they go to Children's Church. Bless them, Lord, that they would learn about who you are, they would know who you are, and they would place their personal trust in you as well. Lord, help us to be faithful with the stewardship of time opportunity that you've given us this day and this moment. We pray these things in Jesus' strong name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, open to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5. A number of years ago, it's been some time ago now, that uh, our insurance company informed us that they were discontinuing their business with us due to an internal restructuring of the company. And my wife, always looking ahead, began to look into several reputable insurance companies. And so we began to compare this company with that company, comparing prices and benefits and so on. It didn't take long before we began to realize that pretty much all of the insurance companies were alike. Maximum prices, minimum benefits. (laughs) This morning, I want to talk to you about the benefits of your salvation, the benefits of your justification that you have by Christ alone through your faith. As we look at Romans chapter 5, I could not help as I was studying through this passage, there is a sense of incredible, ecstatic joy as I poured through the words of the Apostle Paul in this chapter. 
I soon discovered I was not alone. The great reformer Martin Luther said this, In the whole Bible, there is hardly another chapter that can equal this triumphant text. And the reason is very simple. It flows from chapter 3 and chapter 4, where Paul has very carefully and made abundantly clear that our justification, our righteousness before God, is based on our faith in Jesus Christ alone. That the moment we trust Jesus Christ and his redemptive work on the cross and the person of who he is, God incarnate, the moment we put our faith in him, God gives us his gift of righteousness. Now, Paul has carefully explained that in chapter 3 and then illustrated that in chapter 4. And he begins now in chapter 5 talking about, so what are the benefits of this great justification by faith alone that God has given us, this great salvation that God has purchased for us? He's made it abundantly clear that we can do nothing to gain this on our own. We did nothing, but God has done everything to secure that for us. We can't work for it. We do not deserve it. We certainly don't deserve it. Nor can we pay enough for it. It is entirely the free work of God. You see, you and I are no different than the thief on the cross. What do we have to offer God but our brokenness? What do you have to offer Christ but your sinfulness? And you did nothing, and yet that thief on the cross, that day, Jesus said, Today, you will be with me in paradise. And we are no different than the thief on the cross. We have nothing to offer God. You have done nothing for God. You will do nothing for God that will merit his gift of righteousness in your life. And we no different than the thief can only come before God and say, God, I'm helpless, I'm sinful, I'm broken, and by your grace, will you forgive me and save me? Paul has made that so clear in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And he says, the moment you trust Christ, you're instantly justified. You're instantly declared righteous before God. In fact, that is the great theme of the book of Romans, is justification by faith alone. But justification is more than simply forgiveness. It is a permanent gift of God's righteousness for you and for me. Let me be very clear about this, though. This is not a pardon. God didn't look at your life and say, I'm pardoning you from your sins. You see, a criminal will always have a record after their name. You don't. This is not a pardon. Nor is God's justification putting you on parole. As long as you mind your manners and do well, you'll be good with God. But the moment you mess up, you'll lose God's favor. It is neither pardon nor parole. It is permanent forgiveness that God has given us through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is going to show us. And he wants us to know that your failure is forgiven, past, present, and future. The author in Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17. He says, God says, their sinfulness I will remember no more. Their lawless deeds and their sin I will remember no more. 
You see, Christ took it all on the cross for you and for me. Now you're wondering, I've heard this before. Where's he going with all this? The whole book of Romans, listen carefully, the whole book of Romans is to take the salvation that you have and to deepen it in such a way that it will be more profound, more powerful in your life than you think it is now. In other words, the whole book of Romans does examine carefully what is this salvation that God has secured for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And the deeper we understand that, the better we understand that, the closer we grow to God and the more secure we are in this relationship of grace. And that's my prayer for you this morning. That as we deepen in this relationship of grace with God, we'll also become more secure in this walk with Him as well. You see, Paul's going to talk about this in Romans chapter 5. And he wants us to understand what this salvation really means in our lives, the benefits of it. So if you have your Bibles, open me to Romans chapter 5. Now I have to confession to make to you. I had started off earlier in the week and I said, you know, we're going to cover chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And so I started studying verses 1 through 11. And I thought, no, we better not do that. We're going to go 1 through 5. And as I started studying through... Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5. I realized, no, we're not going to do that either. We're just going to do chapter 5, verses 1 and chapter, or verse 2. Just two verses. That's all we're going to cover today. Why? Because there's so much here that Paul has for us that I don't want to rush through it. But I rather, I wanted to, you to savor the truths of God's rich love for you and me and the security that we want you to have in that. So we're going to look at just two verses today as we walk through Romans chapter 5. So let's look at these verses. Next week's going to be a lot of fun, too. I'm looking forward to that. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope and the glory of God. Now, you'd be wondering, what is Paul saying here? Well, you know as well as I do that whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you want to know why the therefore is therefore. And the therefore is from chapter 3 and chapter 4. He says, we've been justified by our faith in Christ, just like Abraham was more than 2,000 years ago from Paul's standpoint, more than 4,000 years ago from our standpoint. Just like Abraham, the greatest patriarch of the Jews, was saved by faith alone, so are we. Therefore... Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you about this peace that we have and the implications of that in our lives this morning. Now, unlike most insurance policies that require high premiums and alarming deductibles, limited coverage, lifetime spending limits, and very little security, God offers just the opposite. He only requires faith in His Son that securely lasts for all eternity. God's plan lasts for eternity. It is eternally secure. Listen to this. has zero deductibles. It covers all pre-existing and future conditions. And it has no ceiling on the amount of coverage you receive. And listen to this. The visits are all free. 
and there is unlimited access. You see, that's what Paul is going to show us in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, is that God has given us, if you will, his policy on forgiveness. And he wants to unpack it for us to help us understand how amazing this forgiveness is that God has purchased for us through his son. But let me just kind of dial in where you're at real quick before we go any further. If I ask you, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you asked him to forgive you of your sins? Have you surrendered your life to him? You might say, yes, I have done that. And I would say, are you secure about the future that God has for you because of your hope in Christ? And you might say, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's where I'm going to go when I die. You see, the reality is many of you say or want to believe that you're secure in your faith and God's promise of where you're going after this life. But push comes to shove. Many of you are struggling in your relationship with God. In fact, you doubt your relationship with God. You wonder how secure is this promise of God in your life. Can I lose it? You see, some people believe that their salvation is only as secure as their faithfulness to God. That we gained God's salvation by His work, but we maintain it by our work. If you're there, then that's not new. More than 2,000 years ago, the Galatian believers struggled with the same thing. The Apostle Paul asked them this question. He said, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Wow! Are you trying to finish in your own power what Christ has already accomplished for you in His power? You see, there's no security in that, is there? The fact is, it is a recipe for insecurity, for fear, and for permanent immaturity. You're not going to live beyond what you believe if that's where you're at. So what I'm really doing this morning is I'm dialing in. I'm saying, okay, you say you believe this up here. But is it really true down here? Have you examined your faith based on God's word to say that I know whom I, have, whom I believe and that he's able to guard that which I've given him until that day? Do you really believe you're secure in your relationship with God? Or do you base that security on your performance versus his performance on the cross for you? God wants you to know that you are permanently, eternally secure in Christ, not because of your ability to maintain the salvation that he's given you, but rather because he has already accomplished it for you through his power. And he wants you to understand exactly what that means. Now, just imagine for a moment if you grew up in a home that your relationship with your mother and father was conditional. Their acceptance of you was always conditional. If you behave a certain way, we'll accept you, we'll love you. But if you don't behave a certain way, we're not going to accept you, we're going to reject you. Now, some of you grew up in a home like that. What did that do for all of your relationships in your life? It set you up for great insecurity, didn't it? You're insecure in all of your relationships. Why? Because you've ever, never known or experienced what it means to be unconditionally loved and accepted and be secure in that. 
God wants you to know that you're unconditionally loved and accepted and be secure in that. And maybe you come from a world, a lifetime of relationships, of a lot of hurt and rejection. And that your relationship with God mirrors your relationship with others. In other words, if others have rejected you based on conditions that you didn't measure up to, you feel that God's going to do the same thing. God says, I want you to know that my love for you is unconditional. It is completely secure. Your salvation is not secure by your faithfulness. Your salvation is secure by my faithfulness. So Paul's going to look at some of these benefits that we're going to unpack in these two verses this morning. So let's look at these together. Uh, There are three things that Paul tells us that I want us to be aware of that he shows from these two verses. See, if I would have gone all through 11, we'd have had about 15 of them. And you'd have said, I don't remember what number one was by the time we got to number five. So I thought, let's just do three. Three is a good memory uh, number for us, right? Yep, it is. For me, it is. You get beyond three and I'm lost. So let's just look at three of these things. First of all, Paul says, therefore, I've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does Paul say the very first benefit is? He says, we have peace with God. Do you know you have peace with God? There are some believers that are saying, I just want peace with God. I just want peace with God. And they don't understand the Bible already teaches. You already have peace with God. I want you to circle those words, those five words. We have peace with God. There is more overwhelming joy wrapped up in those five words than any other. More so, listen to this, more so than if you were to hear the news today. Listen, you have just won the $20 million lottery. There's more joy wrapped up in these words than if you were a criminal on death row and you were pardoned and told you are now free. There's more joy in these five words than if you were struggling with a disease that was destroying your body and the doctor says to you, you are now healed. There is more joy in these five words than anything the world can offer you. Why? Why? Because being at peace with God means simply this, that I am no longer in danger of God's eternal wrath. You see, nothing in this world is going to answer or appease or heal our hearts And bring the peace we long for until we have peace with God. Jesus said this way in John chapter 3 verse 36. He said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Elsewhere, the Bible says this. Jesus says, they do not come into judgment, that is those who have trusted Christ, but if passed out of death into life. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians, he says that Jesus is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. Now, hell is not a popular topic today, is it? 
And most of us don't want to hear about it, yet the Bible talks a lot about it. Why? Because hell is a reality. And it is more than a reality. It is an eternal destiny for those who reject Christ. And the peace that God wants to give you and give to me is being spared from that eternal separation of God's wrath in our lives. And so God says, listen, I'm offering you peace with me through my son Jesus Christ based on your faith alone. But I want to be very clear about the kind of peace that Paul is talking about here. Paul is not talking about a subjective peace like a feeling. He's talking about an objective peace, a fact. In other words, this is a peace treaty, if you will, that God has said the war between you and me is over. Because of your faith in my son Jesus Christ, we are no longer at war. This is not a subjective feeling. We'll talk about that in a moment. But what God is saying here is that we objectively are no longer at war with God. This is kind of interesting to me because there are a lot of people who believe they're not at war with God. Yet the Bible very clearly teaches, apart from our salvation in Christ alone, every single human being, every single human being is at enmity, at war with God. And there are many believers, unbelievers today who will say, you know what, I, I, I'm not at war with God. That's silly. They're not conscious of any feelings or uh, anything they're doing in their lives that is objectionable or an opposed to God's word or God's will or his work. They don't think they're at war with God. In fact, if anything, they are indifferent toward the things of God. They're neutral. They're kind of like the nation of Sweden during World War II. They thought they were neutral. But in fact, there is no such thing as being indifferent or neutral with God. You're either with God or you're opposed to God. And this war with God becomes very evident in every person, even though they say, I'm not at war with God. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. You most certainly are. Well, I am not. Yes, you are. And the reason that you're at war with God comes down to this one thing. It comes down to surrendering your life to doing the will of the one who made you. It comes down to giving your life to God and saying, not my will be done, but your will be done. You see, we are at enmity with God when we say, God, I don't want to do your will. I'm going to do my own will. And that's exactly what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Listen very carefully. He says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. What is he saying? He's saying, the mind that is set in this world, they're saying that my life, everything I'm looking for, that I want, that I desire, is in this world. It's the flesh. And he says, that mind is hostile, that is at war with God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, that is the will of God, for it is not even able to do so. Wow. In other words, the mind of the person who's at war with God has as the focus of their life on their own flesh, their own life, the things of this fallen world. It doesn't see beyond that. The mind of a hostile flesh is hostile toward God because it refuses to surrender to God, nor is it even able to to do so. Wow. Just think about that for a moment. I'm not talking about unbelievers. That you'd say, yeah, that's not a believer. He's not a, no, she's not a believer. I'm talking about you. 
one of the most important things to ask yourself if you say that I believe in God is then to ask yourself this, am I committed to doing his will with my life? Jesus said it this way, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. You see, when true faith takes place in our lives, then we have obedience that flows from that. And that obedience manifests itself in wanting to do God's will with our life. So the question for you and for me is this. It's not whether I say I believe in God. It's not whether I say I've trusted Christ. It's rather, does the obedience demonstrate a true surrender to doing God's will? That's the work of God in your life. Because listen to what he says. He says, the person who is hostile toward God does not subject itself to the will of God, for it is not even able to do so. Your ability to do God's will, to obey him, comes from the result of having the Holy Spirit inside of you who empowers you to do God's will in your life. So I'm not talking about obedience that is conditional on whether God accepts you or not. I'm talking about obedience that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you when you truly trust Christ. Does that make sense? And so God is saying this, when you truly trust my son, Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit's going to be at work in you to enable you to obey me and do my will. So that when you come to Christ, one of the first things that happens in a believer's life is to say, you know what, I, I, I want to do God's will with my life. I had great ambitions. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to go here and go there. But I don't want to do those things anymore. I want to do God's will with my life. It's the weirdest thing in the world. I didn't used to be that way, but now suddenly I want to do God's will. Where does that come from? It comes from the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells inside of you. That's where it comes from. So in other words, all I'm saying is that faith produces obedience. So we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And we want to do God's will. That's the evidence that we truly belong to God. See, a person who says that there is nothing wrong between them and God, they're not at war, is as far from the truth as the prime minister of China claiming that the goals and the values of Chinese communism are peaceful toward America. It's not going to happen. You see, only Jesus Christ can save us from the terrors of the coming judgment that is coming. Now, Paul is talking about the objective peace. This is a fact. God says, you're no longer at war with me because of your faith in Jesus Christ. It's a fact. But the resultant fact of that is also a subjective feeling or experience of knowing God's peace personally. Did you know that God wants you to experience his peace? Some of you, I hope you're not so conservative that you think that, no, I don't experience anything. I know, I'm picking on you a little bit. But God wants you to experience his peace. He really does. Jesus said this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. There's a peace that God wants to give you because the war is over. It's a fact, but it's also a feeling. He wants you to know his peace. This is the peace that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. 
where he wants to give us a peace of God that surpasses all human comprehension and guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is an experiential peace that comes from the objective fact that we are no longer at war with God. That's what it means. And is it certainly true of me in my life? I grew up a very conservative person. <laughs> I'm not so conservative now. No, very conservative in that sense. And so I was doubtful of feelings, doubtful of pie-in-the-sky answers and so like that. I want to know God. I want to really know the truth of who God is. I don't want some subjective feeling that's just a feeling. I want to know it's connected to objective fact. I can tell you, as a young man in my later teens, I experienced the peace of God unlike I'd ever known before. I remember going up on top of a mountain behind our farm. And there I was convicted of my sins, my complete unworthiness of God's forgiveness. And I asked him to forgive me. And I surrendered my life to him. And the moment I did that, there was an unmistakable, overwhelming peace that flooded my life. It flooded my heart. The war that had raged on inside of me was gone. A heavy load was lifted off my shoulders. And suddenly I felt a peace that I knew was the very Prince of Peace himself, the presence of God in my life. And I knew that I was forgiven, though I felt unforgivable. I knew the war was over. Can I ask you, do you have God's peace? Or are you still at war with God? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I'm not talking about cerebrally. I'm talking about with your heart as well. Have you said, Lord, let this truth sink down into my heart. Let me truly embrace a surrendered life to you as my Savior and Lord. I humble myself before you. I ask you to forgive my sins. I don't want to play games, God. I really want to give my life to you. Because I can't fool you. I may fool myself. I may fool others. But I can't fool you. Are you at peace with him? The Apostle Paul says we now have peace with God. There's a second benefit, and that is that we have access to God. He says in verse 2, he says, Through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Paul is simply saying this. Listen carefully, because this is going to step on some of your toes. Paul is saying that by this grace, this new relationship of grace we have with God, that God has made accessible through His Son, Jesus Christ, we have permanent and confident access to God. It means this, that when you pray, it means that when you seek God, you can go into the very throne room of God Himself, and you can be confident, and you can be bold, and you can be sure that when you seek God, God has opened the door that he has allowed you to do just that because of his son. I like the words of J.B. Phillips, who captures this sense really well in his translation of this verse. He says, through him, through Christ, we have confidently entered into this new relationship of grace, and here we take our stand. I like that. Do you know what he's saying? 
is that some of you come to God, you go, oh, I'm not sure if I can come to God. Because you're afraid. How many of you would say that? Nobody dare raise their hand. One does. God says that I made access for you to me through my son Jesus Christ. I've given you my son's righteousness. I love you with the same love I love my son. Now you are my child. And I want you to know that the same as Jesus has always had access to the Father, so you have always have access to me. And I want you to be confident in that access. Not insecure, not on wobbly knees, but to know that no matter what it is or where you're at, you have bold access to God in your life. That's what he's saying here. Through whom also we have obtained introduction. The word here is access. How? By faith into this grace which we now stand. Wow, I like that. Paul is saying something very important here. In fact, two things I want to bring out. One is that divine grace gives us access to God, and two, divine grace guards our access to God. It both gives us access to God and guards that access. Let me kind of take these apart a little bit for you. First of all, divine grace gives us access to God. That is, our faith, listen carefully, your faith is necessary to be saved, but... Your faith does not have the power to save you because it's not your faith that saves you. It is God's grace that saves you. Only God's grace through Christ has the power to save you and give you access to the Father. And there is no other way. Now, I want you to listen very carefully because if we made it based on our faith, we'd say, well, I have a lot of faith. Therefore, I have a lot of access to God. And God says, no, you don't understand. Your faith is powerless to save you. Now, it does take faith to exercise this salvation, but that faith is empowered by my grace, not faith itself. And so the power comes from my grace in your life. And there is no other way, no other access to me but through my son, Jesus Christ, this road of grace. Years ago, I will never forget, I was... Um, Briefly stationed in a place called 29 Palms, affectionately known as 29 Stumps. Uh, some of you might be familiar with it. It's a marine uh, bombing, active bombing base. They can detonate pretty much any bomb short of a nuclear. <laughs> so it's a live bombing range. And we spent uh, some time there. And while I was there on watch one night, a four-hour watch, I was with a fellow CB, and we began to talk about God. Isn't that interesting? We began to talk about That's weird, isn't it? Talk about God. Uh, but uh, it was so easy to do. And we began to talk about the Lord. And he told me right up front, he says, listen, John, he says, there's no way you're going to change my mind about praying to my saints. I said, that's interesting. I said, that's fine. I said, but would you maybe let God talk to you about that? And so I opened it up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I read for him from 1 Timothy chapter 2. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. When he read those words, he was stunned. 
Because, you see, all his life he had been taught, he believed, that in order for me to have access to God, I have to go through saints. Saint this or saint that or saint so-and-so. And yet the Bible says, no! That's why Christ came, so we could have direct access through God himself, Jesus Christ. That very night, he trusted Jesus Christ. And his whole life radically began to change. Why? Because he realized that divine grace gives us direct and permanent and confident access to God through Christ. That's it. The Bible says we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Not by a saint or anything else. Second, divine grace not only gives us access, but it guards our access to God. In other words, we're not saved by divine grace and then protected or preserved by our own efforts. Even though we're forgiven, listen carefully, even though you're forgiven, you're still going to sin. How many of you know that? Even though you're forgiven, you're still going to mess up. You're still going to sin. It happens. But here's what you need to understand is that your sin is not more powerful than the grace of God in your life. And sometimes we think just the opposite of that, don't we? We think, oh, no, I've messed up. God's not going to forgive me of this. He's going to reject me. And God says, you don't understand. You don't understand. That where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, he said. That your sin is not greater than the grace of God to keep you and to guard your relationship with him. Yes, you'll mess up. But it does not mean that God will reject you in your life. I like the way Pastor John MacArthur says this. He says, If no sin a person commits before salvation is too great for Christ's atoning death to cover, surely no sin he commits after salvation is too great to be covered. I like that. Divine grace guards our access to God no matter how bad our sin may be. Now, there's a, something I need to say here because you're thinking, okay, where is he going with this, John? You're thinking, this means that I can just live however I want. No, it doesn't. Grace is never a license to sin. Jesus didn't die to free you to sin. He died to free you from sin. And when you become a believer, what's going to happen inside of your life is that you're going to begin to change in the inside, and that change is involuntary. It's not of your own volition. You're not saying, I'm going to change. I'm really going to try hard. I'm going to do it this time. I'm really going to change. I'm going to be good. You begin to see changes in your life that is the evidence of the Holy Spirit changing you, where it echoes the very words of Scripture. For God is at work in you, both the will and the work according to His good pleasure. And you begin to change from the inside. Things you didn't like before you begin to like. Things you did like, you don't like. I've shared the story before, but it's worth telling again. Years ago, I remember meeting a man who was, for years, had been part of AA. And I met him, uh, interested of all things, at a gym. And as uh, my favorite part of the gym was not the workout part, was going into this dry sauna. And I would just hit this dry sauna, and I'd try to just make it as long as I could, just stay in there and stay in there. One, one time I was in there, and I met a guy. He was sitting in the very top in the hottest part of the sauna. And he's reading a book that had both sides of the cover torn off. And I thought, he's trying to hide something. At least uh, that was my impression. That was right. And so I said, hey, what are you reading? 
and very sheepishly, like he'd been caught. He said, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm reading a book on transcendental meditation. I said, wow, okay. And thus began a conversation about God and about the Bible and about Jesus, and I got too hot. I had to leave. The next week, he was there again, and we began the same conversation all over again. This went on for a while, and then one day, while I was at the gym, I saw him coming across the entire floor of the gym. He had a huge smile on his face, and he had a fast gait, and he was making his way right to where I was at. And he extended his hand out. He says, John, 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 I trusted Jesus Christ. And my wife trusted Jesus, and my children trusted Jesus. His name was Jeff. And his life radically changed. Why? Because he realized he realized God's grace in his life had freed him from his addiction. He not only came to Christ, but he began to live for Christ. And his likes and his dislikes changed. He shared about a time that he went into, kind of dating this a little bit, but he went into a Blockbuster video store. Do you remember Blockbuster video? <laughs> he went in, and this was a Friday night. His typical Friday night routine was to go over to the Rated R section and find a Rated R movie. And he began to look at all the movies, and he was looking at all of them, and he suddenly looked, and he said, you know what? I don't even like these movies. And it kind of hit him. He's like, well, why don't I like these movies? I used to like them all the time. I watched them all the time. Why don't I like these movies? And he realized at that point in time, it was because the Holy Spirit inside of him, God working inside of him, had changed him from the inside out involuntarily and changed his likes and his dislikes to want to please God. He walked away from that rated R section. I don't even watch any of those movies. And I remember him relating that to me. He was stunned because he saw the changes taking place inside of his life that was clearly the work of God, not himself. And so this grace not only gives you access to God, but it guards your access to God. And the way you're going to know that is that working in your life is going to change how you see life. It's going to change how you make decisions. It's going to change how you relate to other people. And so the bottom line is this, is that Christ did not come to free you to sin. He came to free you from sin. That faith produces obedience. You see, if you're living a life that is still caught up in sin, and you say, hey, it's no big deal. I'm okay with that. Do you know what that means? It means you're still at war with God. And your eternal destiny is not secure as you may think it is. Paul tells us at the end of 2 Corinthians, he says, examine your faith. Am I trying to terrify you? Yes. Not to terrify you with an undue fear, but rather to cause you to pause and say, am I really genuine about my faith in Christ? Have I surrendered my life to him? Or am I just playing a game of religion? God sees through your heart. He knows where you're at in your life. So divine grace gives us access and it guards our access to God. Third is this, that we have hope to live by. Listen to this, he says in the last part of chapter, he says, we, we exalt in hope and the glory of God. The hope that Paul is talking about here, listen carefully, is a hope that is not uh, filled with insecurity like, I hope, I hope I make it to heaven. But this hope is filled with absolute confidence and certainty. Paul is saying we exalt in hope and the glory of God. 
In fact, the way we know this to be true is one from the word hope that is used. Hope in the Bible is never used of like, I'm not sure if this is true or not, I hope so. But rather, hope in the Bible is absolute confidence, absolute certainty. Why? Because God said it and God meant it and God will keep his word. That's what it means. But listen, here's what Paul does in response to this. Because this hope is so certain, he says this, we exult in hope. That word exalt there is one of Paul's favorite words. He uses it more than anybody else. It's used 37 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it 34 times in those 37 times. Paul likes this word. And this word exalt simply means this, to rejoice, to boast, not boast in yourself, but boast in God. It's the praise that Tammy was talking about earlier. When we praise God, we're boasting of who God is and what he does in our lives. This exalt, the effect of knowing the hope that God has for us, causes us inwardly to shout for joy to be excited about what God is doing and going to do in the promises in our lives. You see, Paul is so absolutely certain and convinced of God's future that he speaks of it in the most confident of terms. And he understands it in such a way that it's filled with an uncontainable gratitude toward God. Now, this is really profound when you think about it, because we've been walking through the book of Romans, right? And Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now Paul is saying this, listen. He says, at one time we once fell short of the glory of God, but now, guess what? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I hope you're really hearing what I'm saying this morning. Because some of you this morning woke up, and maybe you made the mistake of watching the news. But some of you are living every day filled with anxiousness and fear. Fear of the future. But the Apostle Paul reminds us in God's word, we do not need to fear the future. God has secured our destiny in his glory. And we do not need to fear the future, whatever it may be. You see, we enter this, this relationship of grace we don't have to do it with an uneasy sense of concern that our good deeds will be good enough or that our bad deeds will keep us out. Why? Because God, God's grace saves you and God's grace keeps you. The Apostle Paul said it this way, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, guess what? Will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul or Jude says, now to him who is able to keep, to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand, listen to this, make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. One of these days, one of these days, one of these days, you're going to take that final breath and you're going to enter into that glory and God says, don't be afraid, but it will be a time of exultant joy. It is so absolutely certain. One of the verses that I've often thought about that reminds me of this is Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul talks through the stages of our salvation. He says, you were called, then you were justified, then you were glorified. And what he's walking through there is the stages of our salvation. He says, first of all, God called you. <laughs> you're, you're called. You didn't say, hey, God, hey, I'm over here. God said he called you. 
And then it says he justified you. That's that one-time instant happened. That the moment you trust Christ, you are then declared righteous. But then he says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. He says, God called you, he justified you, and he glorified you. Now, some of you maybe heard, heard me say this before, but you know what? As I look at you, you don't look very glorified. <laughs> and as you look at me, you say, he's definitely not glorified. But the Apostle Paul is saying something about the certainty of the hope that we have in the future of God's promise. He's saying this, that God is so absolutely certain of your eternal destiny. He says, one, he called you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he called you before the foundations of the earth. He chose you. He justified you. There was a moment in time when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and he gave you the gift of his righteousness, the gift of his Holy Spirit. He gave you his salvation. But God is so absolutely certain of your destiny that he says, you are also glorified. He speaks in past tense of your future destiny in heaven as though it's already a reality. What God wants us to understand is we do not need to live a life of insecurity in his promises, but absolute confidence and joy. I like the words that William Newell said it this way. He spoke with this confidence saying, Alas, how few believers have courage of faith. When some saint here or there does begin to believe the facts and walk in shouting liberty, I like that, in shouting liberty, we say, perhaps secretly, he must be especially holy, a consecrated man. No, says Newell, he is just a sinner like you who is believing in the abundance of grace. Boy, I hope I can help you understand this. Some of you are looking at your lives and you're looking at your past, maybe even as of an hour ago, maybe five minutes ago, and you're going, I don't, I don't know, God. Am I really that secure with you? And God says, I want you to understand something. When you trusted me and I gave you the gift of your salvation, that keeping is not in your power, it's in my power. And I want you to let go of the accusations, the insinuations of the past and embrace my grace in your life and live with confidence in the joy that I have for you through my son Jesus Christ. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. Let me close with this. One of my heroes of the faith, and certainly uh, not alone in this, was Martin Luther. He wrestled in his walk with God in a way that I think might surprise many of us before he came to a place where he crossed that line of faith. He was angry at God at one point in his life. You see, he was a man who really wanted to know God. And so he surrendered himself, if you will, to the good deeds that were prescribed through the Roman Catholic Church. And as much as he tried to do all these good deeds, he didn't find relief. He found regret, a deeper sense of frustration, fatigue, and depression. Luther shares about this time in his life in his own words. He says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. 
I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction, the good things I do. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed every, by every kind of calamity by the law of the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain with the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteous wrath. Do you hear what he's saying? Many of us have been there as well. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, he says, I beat importunately, that is persistently, upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted, uh, wanted in his letter in the Romans. Luther was at war with God, and he knew it. He did not know or understand the peace of God, but he wanted peace with God. Yet he was trying to earn his way out of debt with God on his own terms. You see, there are a lot of people who say, I don't want to be at war with God. In fact, God, here's my peace treaty. And we try to say, God, here are my terms of peace with you. And we try to dictate to God our own terms of peace with him. How many of you have done that? <laughs> and God says, it doesn't work. It's my terms or no terms. You forget something very important. I'm the creator, you're the creature. I am God. And therefore, you cannot dictate the terms of peace with me. They must be and can only be on my terms. So God says, here are my terms. I sent my son to pay the debt for your sins and put an end to the war between us. My terms are terms of grace. I choose to offer you my forgiveness and peace only through faith in my Son. Luther finally caught this. He later wrote this. As he was rustling through the book of Romans, he came to Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He said, By the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in Romans 1, 17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely, by faith. And this is the meaning of this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And here he says, I felt this peace that was not objective but subjective. He felt and experienced the peace of God. He said, I I felt that I was altogether, altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. Wow. Isn't that good? You see, the reality is there are many people that are at war with God today and they don't even know it. They think they can dictate the terms of peace with God on their own terms and God says, no, that can't happen. I establish the terms and you must submit to those terms. And when you do, you'll find my peace that you long for in your life. You see, I think one of the greatest things that our day and age longs for more than anything else is peace, isn't it? And there are people that are striving for peace today, trying to find economic peace. 
There are people who are trying to find political peace. There are those who are trying to find foreign peace, global peace. But God says, it won't do any good. The only peace that's truly to be found is in my son, Jesus Christ. That's the peace you're really looking for. Not the peace the world can give, but only the peace that Jesus Christ can give you alone. So what are the promises of God, the assurances he wants us to have? One, that you have peace with God. Stop asking him for what he's already given you. You have peace with God. And that peace has allowed you permanent and eternal and secure access to God. 24-7, 365. And not only has he given you access to God, but he's given you a hope to live by. A certain, absolute, secure hope in Him. You see, you know where you're going because He said it is so. Will you pray with me? This morning, with your heads bowed and your eyes.